You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode number 248 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. With this show, we're going to continue with our look back at what happened during the second year of the Civil War. As y'all recall, when we wrapped things up at the end of the last episode, we had just finished with June 1862, and so we'll start this show at the beginning of July. On July 1st, the Battle of Malvern Hill is the last clash of the Seven Days Campaign. At Malvern Hill, Robert E. Lee makes his final attempt to deal a lethal blow to the Army of the Potomac. But the Union position is a strong one, and the Confederate attacks are neither well-planned nor well-coordinated, and the rebel troops advancing across open fields take heavy casualties from the unrelenting fire of Federal artillery batteries and also from the big cannon on the nearby Yankee gunboats on the James River. George McClellan rejects suggestions by his subordinates that he launch a counterattack after the Army of the Potomac's defensive victory at Malvern Hill, and instead he continues his retreat to Harrison's Landing, where he establishes a fortified camp protected by the Navy's gunboats. And with that, the Peninsula Campaign is over. As Abraham Lincoln's dissatisfaction with Little Mac grows, northern civilians and politicians seek someone to blame for the campaign's failure. Republicans tend to blame McClellan, while many Democrats zero in on Secretary of War Edwin Stanton. In the Confederacy, people breathe a sigh of relief at Richmond's salvation. Confederate War Department clerk John Jones writes in his diary, quote, Lee has turned the tide. In fact, from here on out, by and large, Lee and his Army of Northern Virginia will remain central to Southern hopes, including the hope that the European powers will recognize the Confederate States of America as an independent nation, a possibility that now seems tantalizingly close as Lee's stunning success in turning McClellan back from the gates of Richmond has impressed leaders in London and Paris, and the cotton shortage is starting to cause significant layoffs among British textile workers, giving the British added reason to intercede in the American conflict. On 
On July 1st, even as the fight at Malvern Hill is bringing the seven days battles to a close, in Washington, President Lincoln signs the Pacific Railroad Act, which grants land and loans to corporations that are organized to build a transcontinental railroad and telegraph line from Omaha, Nebraska to Sacramento, California. The first rails will be laid eastward from Sacramento in 1863. As the federal government continues to wrestle with the problem of paying for the growing cost of waging the war, on the first day of July, another piece of legislation also becomes law, the U.S. Internal Revenue Act of 1862. Before the war, most of the government's income was raised from customs payments on goods entering the country rather than on taxes levied on American citizens. But the Internal Revenue Act establishes taxes on just about everything, from luxuries to a wide variety of professions and occupations, including, as one politician notes, quote, bankers and pawnbrokers, lawyers and horse dealers, physicians and confectioners, end quote. Well, the bill will eventually raise monies that cover almost a quarter of wartime expenditures. Most of the taxes won't live long past the end of the war, but the Bureau of Internal Revenue, also established by the Act, will become a permanent fixture in American lives. On July 2nd, Abraham Lincoln issues a call for 300,000 new volunteers. He also signs into law the ironclad test oath by which elected or appointed officials must swear that they have never, quote, borne arms against the United States and will, quote, support and defend the Constitution. Something similar has already been going on for some time. The president has already approved less stringent loyalty oaths for federal government employees and military personnel. In addition, Union military commanders have already required Southerners in reconquered territory or suspected Confederate sympathizers in border states to take loyalty oaths. Later on, Lincoln will start thinking about cooperation and imminent reconstruction in the southern states, and so he will order that these oaths require only a promise of future loyalty. Nevertheless, in 1867, the Supreme Court will declare the ironclad oath to be unconstitutional. On July 4, 1862, the people of Boston open a discharged soldier's home, for honorably discharged Union soldiers who are suffering due to wounds or illness stemming from their military service and who need help finding jobs or reestablishing their community ties. One year later, the home's first annual report will note that its work is, quote, on a scale far too small and one which will soon be found, as indeed it already is, inadequate to the proper care of the disabled soldiers who are likely to be thrown upon the community for support. Also on Independence Day, Frederick Douglass delivers a Fourth of July speech in New York in which he criticizes Abraham Lincoln's conservative approach to emancipation. And Douglass also lashes out at Little Mac, saying, quote, I feel quite sure that this country will yet come to the conclusion that George B. McClellan is either a cold-blooded traitor or that he is an unmitigated military imposter. (laughs) Well, speaking of Little Mac, 
On July 8th, when Lincoln visits the Army of the Potomac at Harrison's Landing, McClellan hands the President an unsolicited letter in which he expresses his views on the prosecution of the war. Little Mac states that, quote, neither confiscation of property or forcible abolition of slavery should be contemplated for a minute. The President doesn't answer McClellan's letter, but it will soon be clear that the course of the war up to this point has caused him to contemplate more forceful policies, including with regard to emancipation. On July 11th, Republican Senator Zachariah Chandler writes to his wife that, quote, McClellan is an imbecile, if not a traitor, end quote. Chandler is a powerful member of the Joint Committee on the Conduct of the War, and tomorrow he will criticize Little Mac on the Senate floor. On the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue, Abraham Lincoln appoints Major General Henry Wager Halleck to the post of General-in-Chief, which has been vacant since the President relieved McClellan of those duties back in March. Little Mac will write to his wife that he considers Halleck's appointment to be a, quote, slap in the face. A couple of days later, on July 13th, Secretary of State William Seward and Secretary of the Navy Gideon Wells accompany Lincoln on a carriage ride to Oak Hill Cemetery, where they are to attend a funeral service for Secretary of War Edwin Stanton's infant son. During the ride, Lincoln informs the two cabinet secretaries that he intends to issue an Emancipation Proclamation. As Wells will later record in his diary, Lincoln states that, after much contemplation, he has come to the conclusion, quote, that it was a military necessity, absolutely essential for the salvation of the Union, that we must free the slaves or be ourselves subdued. In mid-July at Murfreesboro, Tennessee, Confederate Cavalry General Nathan Bedford Forrest and his hard-hitting horsemen stage a spectacularly successful raid that captures the town's entire 1,400-man Union garrison and $1 million worth of supplies and equipment. Forrest will continue causing trouble for federal forces in Middle Tennessee through the end of the month. Meanwhile, to the north, in Kentucky, Confederate Colonel John Hunt Morgan will lead his rebel horsemen on a three-week-long cavalry raid through the Bluegrass State, raising anxieties of the possibility of a pro-Confederate uprising there and creating fear in neighboring Ohio. On July 14th, Abraham Lincoln signs the General Pension Law, which establishes a government pension system for men who become disabled, quote, from causes which can be directly traced to injuries received or disease contracted while in the military service, end quote. Retroactive to March 1st, 1861, the Act also provides pension benefits to widows and families of military personnel killed in the war. On July 15th, the recently commissioned Confederate ironclad ram, CSS Arkansas, battles her way down the Yazoo River and out into the Mississippi, where she then runs through the Union fleet anchored above Vicksburg, before anchoring at that city's wharf, where she's protected by the big rebel guns and the batteries on the bluffs above the river. After nightfall, David Farragut, 
enraged that the Arkansas got past his fleet, leads several Union ships in a run downstream past Vicksburg, targeting the Confederate ironclad. But this and a follow-up attempt on July 22nd are unsuccessful. Gideon Wells telegraphs Farragut, telling him, I need not say to you that the escape of the Arkansas and its attending circumstances have been the cause of serious mortification to the Navy Department and the country. In Washington, after a heated debate, Congress passes the Second Confiscation Act. Among its provisions are freedom for the slaves of all those who support the rebellion when those slaves come within federal control and an authorization for the president to, quote, employ as many persons of African descent as he may deem necessary and proper for the suppression of the rebellion. Congress also approves an amendment to the Militia Act, which states, in part, quote, The president is hereby authorized to receive into the service of the United States for the purpose of constructing entrenchments or performing camp service or any other labor or any military or naval service for which they may be found competent, persons of African descent. On July 22nd, Union General John Dix and Confederate General D.H. Hill agree on an exchange cartel for prisoners of war, which after more than one year of warfare number in the thousands, and are presenting both governments with problems of housing and care. The cartel provides for the parole and exchange of prisoners and bases the rate of exchange on a prisoner's rank. A parole to be put into effect within 10 days after capture permits a prisoner to return to his own lines, provided that he does not take up arms again until he is officially exchanged. Most prisoners will be returned relatively quickly to their own side under this system which will remain in effect until late spring of 1863, when fundamental disagreements between the two sides, including the treatment of black Union soldiers, will cause it to break down. Also on the 22nd, in Washington, Abraham Lincoln reads his draft of the Preliminary Emancipation Proclamation to his cabinet. Reaction is mixed among the secretaries, although the president has already told them that he's determined to take this step. He does, however, listen to a suggestion put forth by Secretary of State Seward when he points out that if Lincoln issues the proclamation now, when Union forces have suffered a string of setbacks, it may seem like an act of desperation. It would be better, Seward says, to delay issuing the proclamation until it can be backed up by a substantial military victory. Lincoln realizes the merit of Seward's argument and agrees to wait. On July 25th, new General-in-Chief Henry Halleck arrives at Harrison's Landing to discuss the future operations of the Army of the Potomac with McClellan. Concerned by the Army's continued inactivity, Halleck is worried that if Little Mac doesn't renew his offensive, then Lee will be able to concentrate on and destroy, in turn, the Army of the Potomac and John Pope's newly formed Army of Virginia. In fact, Lee does have something like that in mind, and Stonewall Jackson and his troops are now heading in Pope's direction. And then on July 30th, in honor of his victory at New Orleans back in April, David Farragut becomes the first U.S. flag officer to be commissioned Rear Admiral.
Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. On August 6, 1862, CSS Arkansas, suffering from severe engine trouble, is heavily damaged during an ill-considered sortie to assist in an attempt to wrest control of Baton Rouge, the Louisiana state capital, from federal forces. Before abandoning ship, the ironclad's crew sets Arkansas ablaze, bringing to a fiery end her 23-day career as a Confederate warship. Never again during the course of the war would a rebel ironclad threaten Union ships on the Mississippi River. Little Mac's inactivity at Harrison's Landing has given Robert E. Lee the opportunity to move against John Pope in northern Virginia and defeat Pope before elements of the Army of the Potomac can reinforce him. On August 9th, 24,000 Confederates led by Stonewall Jackson encounter part of Pope's Army of Virginia at the Battle of Cedar Mountain. At first, the battle went badly for Jackson, but then a counterattack by A.P. Hill's division forced a federal withdrawal. On August 14th, two weeks after he first received the order from Halleck to do so, McClellan finally begins withdrawing his troops from Harrison's Landing. They will be transported by ship to northern Virginia, where they will be in position to assist Pope and protect Washington. But moving that many men will take time and Confederate forces are already moving away from Richmond in order to link up with Stonewall Jackson and carry out Robert E. Lee's plan to close with and destroy Pope's Army of Virginia. On August 19th, Horace Greeley, the influential editor of the New York Tribune, publishes a long, open letter he has written entitled The Prayer of Twenty Millions, in which he calls on Lincoln to enforce the recently passed Second Confiscation Act and to no longer tolerate the behavior of Union officers who display what Greeley terms, quote, a mistaken deference to rebel slavery. Greeley declares that, quote, every hour of deference to slavery is an hour of added peril to the Union, end quote. Greeley, of course, doesn't know that Lincoln has already decided to issue the Preliminary Emancipation Proclamation and is only waiting for a military victory to announce it. At any rate, just a few days later, on the 22nd, in Lincoln's famous response to Greeley, the President writes, quote, As to the policy I seem to be pursuing, as you say, I have not meant to leave anyone in doubt. I would save the Union. I would save it the shortest way under the Constitution. 
If I could save the Union without freeing any slave, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would also do that. End quote. Some critics, even today, point to Lincoln's reply as evidence of his ambivalence toward the continuation of slavery. But in reality, his response to Greeley was obviously a shrewd, calculated move to help prepare the country for the imminent announcement of his decision to issue an Emancipation Proclamation. A month after passage of the Second Confiscation Act and the Militia Act of 1862, which include provisions on which the action is based, the U.S. War Department, on August 25th, authorizes Brigadier General Rufus Ingalls, military governor of the South Carolina Sea Islands, to raise five regiments of black troops on the islands with white men as officers. In responding to rumors that the Federals would begin enlisting black soldiers, Confederate authorities have already issued a general order saying that in retaliation for such quote-unquote crimes and outrages, any white officer of black troops would be executed if captured. Also on August 25th, Robert E. Lee directs Stonewall Jackson's foot cavalry to begin a spectacular flank march that by the 27th will carry them to John Pope's main supply depot at Manassas Junction. There, the Confederate soldiers will eat and drink and stuff everything they can carry into their knapsacks and burn the rest. As strong federal forces approach, Stonewall withdraws and establishes a concealed position along the Warrenton Turnpike near the first Bull Run battlefield. Meanwhile, in Tennessee and Kentucky, Confederate troops led by Kirby Smith and Braxton Bragg are on the march, seeking to wrest control of the Bluegrass State from the Federals. Those moves, of course, will lead to battles at Richmond and Perryville, but for the moment, We'll keep our focus locked in on Northern Virginia, where events are unfolding quickly. After a confused pursuit of Stonewall Jackson, a division of federal troops commanded by Rufus King approaches Jackson's concealed position, and Stonewall decided to engage them. This triggered the Battle of Groveton, or Bronner's Farm, which was a brutal, hours-long musket duel that wreaked havoc on the infantry lines of both sides. As night falls and the firing stops, John Pope believes that Jackson has been run to ground, and so he determines to concentrate his forces and destroy the elusive rebel general's command. But Stonewall isn't retreating. In fact, Lee and Longstreet are approaching the old Bull Run battlefield with the rest of the Confederate army. As this is happening, McClellan decides he can't send any more troops to reinforce Pope, despite orders from Halleck to do so. By his words and actions at this crucial juncture, Little Mac signals he would be happy to see Pope, who he views as a rival, receive a good thrashing at the hands of Robert E. Lee. On August 29th and 30th, 1862, just over one year after the war's first major battle, at First Manassas, the Federals suffer another humiliating defeat on the same battlefield 
at Second Manassas, as Robert E. Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia soundly defeat John Pope and his Federal Army of Virginia. Throughout the two-day battle, Pope makes a series of misjudgments that will bring his Civil War battlefield service to an inglorious end. Beginning with the erroneous conviction that he has trapped Stonewall Jackson, and continuing with his inexplicable failure to credit reports that Longstreet has arrived on the field, Pope ends the first day of the battle by mistaking Confederate moves to consolidate their lines as evidence the rebels are retreating. Despite Pope's assumption that the enemy is retreating, August 30th finds the Confederates still in line of battle and full of fight. A day of ferocious combat will conclude with Longstreet's wing of the rebel army sweeping forward and crushing the Union left. The Federals retreat and are saved from complete disaster only by a stubborn rear guard action. When the news of the defeat reaches Washington, Abraham Lincoln tells his secretary, John Hay, Well, John, we are whipped again, I am afraid. With the debacle at Second Manassas, Pope's stock in Washington falls fast and takes another hit when he asks Halleck the unsettling question, I should like to know whether you feel secure about Washington should this army be destroyed. Well, as the defeated Federals pause and regroup near Centerville, Stonewall Jackson's troops slog north and east through rain and mud to occupy a spot from which they can outflank Pope's new position. But on September 1st, at Chantilly, in a driving rainstorm, a federal blocking force engages the rebels while Pope and the rest of the army escape. However, two Union generals, Isaac Stevens and Phil Kearney, are killed in the fighting. And then, on September 2nd, over the vigorous objections of his cabinet, Abraham Lincoln reluctantly gives George McClellan command of the Union forces in and around Washington, including Pope's defeated army. And so, in two months of stunning successes, Robert E. Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia had reversed the course of the war in the East and carried the fight from Richmond's outskirts to Washington's doorstep. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation, once again, is Return to Bull Run, The Campaign and Battle of Second Manassas by John Hennessy. This is another re-recommendation, which we're taking the opportunity to do during these year-in-review shows. Return to Bull Run by John Hennessy was our recommendation back in episode number 177, It's a top-notch campaign and battle history about one of the Civil War's most neglected major battles, so we have no hesitation in bringing it to your attention once again and suggesting it find a place on your Civil War bookshelf. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also at the website, you can start the process of becoming a member of the Strawfoot Brigade and providing monthly support for the podcast, which we appreciate, of course. But then, besides that warm feeling in your heart you get from supporting the podcast, you'll also have access to over 70 members' episodes there on the website. 
In fact, just last week we finished up a couple of shows called "A Tale of Two Hotels," in which we looked at the stories of the Willard Hotel in Washington and the Spotswood Hotel in Richmond during the Civil War. As we get closer to episode number two hundred and fifty, don't forget you can send in your questions for that show and also get into the drawing for that Civil War atlas. Quite a few, few of you have already sent in a question, and sometimes more than one. So it looks like we'll be devoting that whole show to just answering all the questions y'all have sent in. And we're looking forward to that. And the timing will work out nicely, since we'll be finishing up with our look back at 1862 next week, just in time for episode number 250. Oh, and we wanted to let you know that with next week's show. We may just wait until Monday to record it, since it's the Labor Day holiday weekend here in the states. And next weekend, it's also Tracy's birthday. <laughs> so, with all of that, we may go out and do something special.、Um, so, anyway, all of that's to say, don't be surprised if episode two hundred and forty-nine doesn't hit the airwaves until next Monday. Okay. Well, thanks for listening to this episode of the Civil War, eighteen sixty one to eighteen sixty five, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope you'll join us again next time as we finish up with our look back at eighteen sixty two. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.